From Public Radio International, I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad, the show that brings global issues home. Last year, the Zika outbreak in Brazil began catching the attention of the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. In January, the CDC's Dr. Beth Bell told Voice of America that much was still unknown. We're doing everything we can uh, to understand a little bit more um, about many of the basics. How often does it happen? What are the risk factors? Are there certain things that make this sort of uh, transmission from pregnant women to babies more likely? Since then, the World Health Organization estimates Zika has spread to more than 70 countries. Millions of people have been infected. Zika has been a known virus since 1947, but it wasn't until last year's outbreak that health officials became aware of potentially devastating effects. Dr. Stephen Morris is a professor of epidemiology at Columbia University School of Public Health. That outbreak caused a lot of attention because suddenly it was noticed that uh, although most people were not that sick, pregnant women were giving birth to children having all sorts of congenital uh, abnormalities, particularly what was called microcephaly, small skulls, really small um, abnormalities in brain development, also um, other problems with uh, their eyes, for example. And so it was recognized. Suddenly we started taking it very seriously. Now we're beginning to understand that, in fact, it has multiple knock-on effects that it's not just causing microcephalic infants. That's Stephen Morrison, senior vice president at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, where he directs the Global Health Policy Center. It's also causing brain damage across a whole spectrum of conditions that can only become manifest in some cases a year into a child's development or later. We're now beginning to fear that, in fact, we have a hidden epidemic on our hands, that You know, we have very limited testing capacity here in the United States. And yet, despite these threats, Zika hasn't gotten nearly the same amount of attention as other recent epidemics. When Ebola hit 2014, we we had um, only um, two deaths uh, in this country, and we had rampant hysteria and fear. The threat of Ebola is generating a considerable amount of fear and misinformation across the country, not to mention a growing number of false alarms. We don't have that in this case, even though you could stand back and say this is even more dangerous um, than Ebola. Officials estimate that a staggering 64 million pregnancies are currently at risk. And while Zika could be devastating for pregnant women, for the rest of the population, it poses little danger. Only about one in four people who contract Zika show symptoms. And when they do, it's usually just a mild fever, a rash, or other discomforts, which take about a week to clear up. Rebecca Katz is an associate professor of international health at Georgetown University. Here we have a situation where you had you have a mosquito-borne disease, primarily. It, it's hard to convince the the person who is not of childbearing age, not in a sexual relationship with somebody of childbearing age, that. This is important, and they have to actually take specific actions to protect the entire community. The lack of urgency is also felt in Washington. Two years ago, during the African Ebola outbreak, Congress allocated $5.5 billion in emergency appropriation funds in a largely bipartisan effort. They earmarked most of the funds for the international response. This September, Congress allocated just a little over $1 billion to fight Zika. 
And that was after seven months of partisan bickering. During the debate, Florida Republican David Jolly addressed the House holding a container of 100 mosquitoes he brought up from his state. I rise today to talk about Zika. And I rise with about 100 mosquitoes straight from Florida. Aedes aegypti mosquitoes capable of carrying the Zika virus. This is the reason for the urgency. On this episode of America Abroad, we look into the threat Zika poses, the response to it, and what that says about America's ability to fight infectious diseases, both at home and abroad. We'll also look at the international approach to fighting infectious disease and what is needed from the U.S. as a leader in global health. Finally, we'll see what's being done to identify and eradicate the next global epidemic and what you can do to keep yourself safe. Zika isn't just a problem abroad. It's now here in the United States. So far, there have been roughly 4,000 cases reported in the United States. One of the most vulnerable places is in South Florida. And here to tell us more about what's being done there is Sammy Mack. She covers health care policy for public radio station WLRN in Miami. Welcome. Thank you. We'll talk about the threat in South Florida. How big a deal is it? It's a very big deal. The CDC has told pregnant women and their partners to avoid all non-essential travel to Miami-Dade County, which is a completely unprecedented domestic travel advisory. Um, And it's an ongoing problem, too, because Miami-Dade County has the most travel cases. We have really friendly conditions for the particular mosquito, the Aedes aegypti, that carries the Zika virus. And, you know, when we had our first confirmed evidence of Zika circulating in local mosquitoes, our county mayor, Miami-Dade County Mayor Carlos Jimenez, uh, laid it out this way. Eighty percent of the people that have Zika do not even know they have it. And, And so we have a large number of travelers. We have a large number of residents in Miami Beach that actually were born somewhere else, people traveling from somewhere else, a lot of those countries have uh, Zika, active Zika infections, and so this was not something that was unexpected. And we have a couple of areas where there has been active local transmission of the Zika virus confirmed that is under investigation. Currently, one that is closed. There wasn't, weren't any cases reported for a period of 45 days after it was discovered. But nonetheless, you know, to have three places where this has been spreading locally is a huge deal. And You know, we don't have a great sense of the odds of catching this virus if you're out in one of these areas or, you know, one of the other parts of Miami-Dade County. But the stakes are really high. Mm, Especially for pregnant women. And what has been their reaction? They're very anxious. It's as if the mosquito has taken on this new menacing property that wasn't there before. And and I say that we, we are people who live with mosquitoes. Mosquitoes are a given, you know, mm-hmm. here in South Florida. Um, but one pregnant woman that I spoke to, this woman, Sonia Knight, described it as feeling haunted. It's almost like you, you hear that there's spiders in the room and you find yourself scratching, swatting off ghosts and stuff. To me, there was a mosquito everywhere. And... You know, the state has made free Zika virus testing available to all pregnant women in Florida. And pregnant women go through a lot of of high stakes tests where, you know, the results can have really grave implications depending on whether they're positive or negative. But there there seems to be something really different about 
getting the Zika test. You know, it's it is high profile in a way that other kinds of tests during pregnancy are not. And there's so much that we don't know about it that is also really, really unnerving. Yes, I can imagine that for nine months, you are wondering every time you hear the buzzing of a mosquito, if that's the one, if that's the one that has the Zika virus, whether or not Absolutely. that is an accurate um, fear or not, that you should be so so fearful of every single mosquito, but how can you not be? Right. Not every mosquito is an Aedes aegypti, and not every Aedes aegypti carries Zika, but you don't know that when they're landing on you or when they're buzzing around your head. Now, you are pregnant, so this, is, this must be, this is, first of all, a very personal story for you, but it must have changed how you go about your everyday habits, Right. Yeah, it it has changed a lot. Um, you know, I wear DEET bug spray every day, all day long. I put it on to go out to get the mail, to get the, you know, take the trash out. I wear long <laughs> sleeves and long pants, despite the fact that it's Florida and I've managed to get through an entire pregnant summer without wearing short sleeves or shorts. Um, and I stay indoors a lot. I actually was in New York City a, uh, about a week ago. And All I wanted to do was be outside the entire time. And I hadn't even realized how much time I was spending indoors until I was somewhere where I didn't have to wear DEET all the time. Wow. Um, Yeah. And the other thing about that, too, is I would see other pregnant women in New York who I was surprised how jealous I felt when I was looking at them that they don't have to worry about this right now. Mm -hmm. And so... You know, I'm I'm happy to take the precautions that I'm supposed to take because, again, you know, the the risks to my unborn baby are really terrifying. Um, but at the same time, I hadn't realized just how big a part of my life it had become. Well, we're headed into winter now. So is there some kind of hope that with the colder temperatures, there will be fewer mosquitoes? There may be a little dip in the population, but they don't go away entirely. We don't get hard freezes down here that kill off entire mosquito populations. And the other thing is, this is going to be our problem as long as the Zika virus is active in the Caribbean and in Central and South America. Because as long as there are people who are coming who frequently don't even know that they've been infected with the virus, reintroducing the virus to the mosquito populations here this will be sort of a continuing threat for us. And the other thing is, um, you know, it can also be spread by sexual contact, and that's not seasonal. Well, Sammy, take care of yourself. Thank you. I will. Sammy Mack, she covers healthcare policy for public radio station WLRN in Miami, Florida. We just heard it appears that Zika is a problem that's not going anywhere anytime soon. So what is the American plan for defeating it and other biological threats? And what is our role globally? Here's reporter Jennifer Strong. If you want to know what keeps health experts up at night, it seems the threat of infectious disease epidemics like Zika, influenza, and HIV are just one part of that equation. The second are drug-resistant bacteria. And drug resistance has the potential to make it much more difficult, not just to treat infections, but to administer modern medical care. That's Dr. Tom Frieden, director of the CDC, or U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, near Atlanta. The third area of risk is the intentional creation of dangerous organisms. And that can be done because of research that's being done in the laboratory and then something gets out. Or that can happen because a bad guy is making worse bacteria or viruses. 
These are real risks. Any of these three situations could result in millions of deaths. Remember the anthrax scare in 2001? Advances in biotech make things much scarier. Laurie Garrett is a senior fellow for global health at the Council on Foreign Relations. You know, once you reach a point as we have now where DNA or let's just say genetic information is now just that, information, fully digitized, and therefore impossible to control because anybody can email the code for a virulence gene in Ebola to anybody else. It's now possible for anybody to obtain the genetic sequence of smallpox. If that's not enough to wrap our heads around, she says there's also the role of climate change to consider. Just this year, we had a mass die-off of reindeer in Siberia, and some 35, 40 people were hospitalized. One died. It was anthrax. Anthrax that had long been frozen in the tundra, but because of climate change, the tundra melted. All these factors make early detection and rapid response more vital than ever. But that requires money and preparation and a willingness to talk publicly about dangerous pathogens. Ramanan Lakshminaran is the director of the Center for Disease Dynamics and Economy. He says countries may not report promptly because, if they're wrong, the cost of lost trade, fewer tourists, and lower productivity is significant. No minister really wants to stand up and say, we have this unusual disease in our country and we don't really know what it is. It's a sure way to make sure that people stop coming to your country. That's why we need international organizations to play those sorts of roles, to make sure that there's a reporting going on at a global level. Enter the World Health Organization. Established by the United Nations in 1948, its broad objective is the attainment of health, quote, by all people of the highest possible level. But Laurie Garrett of the Council on Foreign Relations says the agency is falling short. Its handling of the Ebola epidemic in West Africa was abysmal, especially in the first nine months. We now have the possibility of a massive resurgence of cholera in the wake of Hurricane Matthew in Haiti. And once again, WHO is struggling. And she says some of this is structural. It has 194 voting nations. It gives equal vote to Vanuatu and China. If you combine China and India, that's two votes, even though that's two-thirds of the world population. The WHO hasn't raised what member states pay in dues in more than 40 years. So the core budget is steadily going down when you account for inflation. Garrett says it leaves it dependent on just a few donors who give voluntarily. And of course, the biggest donor is the United States. The second biggest isn't even a country. It's Bill Gates. And the third largest is the United Kingdom. And then you kind of have to go down log scale on your donor chart to hit the fourth and on down. And the two biggest nations in the world give negligible amounts of money, China and India. So as the WHO's role has diminished, the U.S. has been filling the void, says Ramanan Lakshminaran of the Center for Disease Dynamics and Economy. WHO receives now most of its funding for specific earmarked activities, and its general ability to help countries has diminished significantly. And therefore, CDC's role now in global health has has increased as a consequence. CDC's budgets are greater, and we depend on CDC to help fight global epidemics in other countries, and it's not just a national role anymore. Laurie Garrett of CFR points to the U.S. government's HIV prevention program as a prime example of this. 
It is the single largest government global health program in history. Nothing comes close, and all targeting HIV. Of the 18 million people on the planet right now who are receiving antiretroviral therapy that is keeping them alive, about 12 million of them, it's U.S. taxpayers keeping them alive. But how do U.S. lawmakers feel about this expanding role abroad? It used to be that you'd hear some members of Congress bellyaching, why are we paying to solve the epidemics of the whole rest of the world? But I hear that less today because it's now appreciated that what starts in an obscure part of the world can end up here. So it's in our interest to solve it and keep it in that obscure part of the world before it gets to us. While attitudes may be changing, partisan politics aren't. And health officials like CDC's Frieden say too much time is wasted getting emergency funding bills passed. But he's optimistic that might change. Coming off the recent experience of Zika and Ebola, Congress is now considering an emergency fund that would be available immediately to help stop outbreaks before they balloon. We don't expect FEMA to go to Congress every time there's a hurricane or an earthquake and ask for more money. But we know that there will be a next time with emerging infectious diseases. That's why people on both sides of the aisle, both houses of Congress, are supportive of an emergency response fund. Right now, a House version of the bill is asking for $300 million for the fund. That's far below what the Obama administration and health officials feel is adequate. But Frieden concedes at least it's a start. And that's good, not only for the U.S., but the world as well. For America Abroad, I'm Jennifer Strong. Coming up, two countries, Singapore and India, with two very different strategies for fighting mosquito-borne diseases. The government really did their part. So we, we as a citizen, we prevent ourselves from Zika to attack. We have to do our part also. For more on this program, check out our website at PRI.org, where you can also find our profile of how one Zika patient is handling her pregnancy. From Public Radio International, you're listening to America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. That's right. Zika is spreading throughout the United States. You know how insane this is for me? I traveled all the way from Africa, and now I'm going to die in New York from a mosquito disease. Do you understand how embarrassing this would be if I died of a mosquito disease in America? My family would be shamed forever. That's The Daily Show host Trevor Noah. Zika was, in fact, first discovered in Africa almost 70 years ago in Uganda. The country's dense vegetation and tropical climate make it a lush breeding ground for mosquitoes. More than 220 different species have been identified there. Well, uh, we get so many different viruses. We get so many uh, outbreaks of different things. Uh, This year alone, we had uh, an outbreak of uh, Rift Valley fever, we also had an outbreak of yellow fever. Virologist Julius Lutwama runs the Uganda Virus Research Institute. He says tracking yellow fever is what initially drew the Rockefeller Foundation to conduct experiments in Uganda back in 1947. Researchers would place monkeys in the forests for a few days and then examine the results. And a blood sample would be collected from these monkeys after they've been uh, bitten by uh, mosquitoes. They would try to find out what infections these monkeys would get. So one of the infections uh, which was found was uh, Zika virus. Uh, It was a new uh, virus which had not been uh, identified elsewhere. And um, they named it Zika virus because uh, 
where the uh, the infection took place is uh, Zika forest. Uganda has never had a serious problem with Zika. Dr. Lutwama says there are several reasons why, including locals who may have built up an immunity and mosquitoes, which prefer other animals to humans. There may be occasional cases when one person is bitten by an infected mosquito, but normally we don't have this moving from one person to another, and it is not common. Dr. Lutwama's work focuses on matching different viruses to different vectors, be it mosquitoes or other insects. Our studies actually go out to look for these uh, different mosquitoes, different uh, ticks and other arthropods to know where different uh, uh, viruses are circulating and also mapping populations of animals and humans at risk of these different viral infections. While Uganda is where Zika was born, it's a separate Asian strain of the virus that's causing the birth defects. That strain was identified back in 2012. Today, Southeast Asia is an emerging hotspot for the virus. The CDC has a travel advisory for Singapore and 11 other countries in the region. From Singapore, Adam Ramsey reports the country is on high alert. Don't worry, that's not a scourge of mosquitoes you're hearing. That's just the sound of mosquito fogging. Pest control teams firing thick white clouds of insecticide up trash chutes and down drains. In Singapore's more residential areas, fumigation like this has become one of the most routine, prosaic forms of pest control employed by the tiny city-state. In reality, it's but one part in a well-established, multi-pronged approach to tackling the dreaded mosquito. Here, they take mosquito control very seriously. Singapore's government is dominated by one-party rule, often described as running a type of benevolent dictatorship. Put simply, this means it's much easier to pass sweeping regulations and then enforce them. If you have residents that are non-compliant, you can actually apply the law and say, well, you know, and now you pay a penalty for not taking care of your premises and making sure that mosquitoes don't breed. That was Professor Ang Yong Ui, the Deputy Director of the Emerging Infectious Diseases Program at Singapore's prestigious National University. Since the late 1960s, when dengue overtook malaria as the most common cause of mosquito-borne disease in children, Singapore initiated, evolved, and fine-tuned programs to tackle it head-on. A half-century later, their success has been undeniable. To give you an example, um, only about 20% of our population aged around 20 years old have had a prior dengue infection. If you go to Bangkok, you go to any other Southeast Asian cities, then that number is probably nearer 80-90%. So the country and the region were in for a shock when Southeast Asia's first case of locally transmitted Zika was discovered in late August in the Aljunied Crescent neighbourhood of Singapore. For Professor Ui, the outbreak may be in part down to the country's prominent and exposed role as a major player in a globalised world. Singapore is, is a hub of finance, of trade and all that in Southeast Asia. Probably the human traffic is a lot higher. Indeed, while its heady days as a lucrative colonial trading post may be long gone, the port of Singapore is today the world's second busiest after only Shanghai. Their main airport is the sixth busiest in the world with regards to international passengers, almost 55 million passing through in 2015 alone. Within days of spotting the first case, the Aljunied Crescent Sims Drive area of Singapore was declared a Zika cluster. Three other areas soon followed suit, and within a month, over 400 cases of Zika were recorded in this island nation, one quarter the size of Rhode Island. For Miss Lee, a local retiree who congregates almost every day outside a Sims Drive salon to talk with friends, it was hard to miss that something was up in their neighbourhood. So many people, itchy, and then... uh 
fever like that. Yet Miss Lee is resolute in saying she never herself harbored any fear for the new epidemic, to which one of her friends helpfully steps in to explain. No baby, no scat. (laughs) Just around the corner from Miss Lee, Irene kept her bakery business going during the outbreak. Zika may not have scared Miss Lee, but according to Irene, it frightened off the majority of the regular shoppers. Those people, they are not willing to come out. They rather stay at home to avoid Zika to attack them, but now it's so empty. Yet while the initial days were dreaded and the potential reach of the disease unknown, Irene says the swift response of the government agencies was comforting and inspiring. They give leaflets, pamphlets, no, over the show, TV, whatever. They don't only write, write it in letters, but they do it in pictures too, so that the elderly can be able to you know, just look at the picture and understand that what they are supposed to do. So the government really did their part. So we, we as a citizen, we prevent ourselves from Zika to attack. We have to do our part also. According to Professor Ui, this is the core of Singapore's approach to have both government institutions and the citizens themselves taking proactive steps towards containment, surveillance and control. In this instance, you had volunteers on the ground within days of the outbreak, handing out both leaflets explaining Zika in four languages and ample supplies of mosquito repellent. You see, Singapore is very much a carrot-and-stick type of country. While some citizens adhere to government recommendations out of a sense of civic duty, others comply under a threat of punitive measures. But however the means, the result is an active and well-informed citizenry, and that's something Professor Ui says other countries could benefit from. The other thing that needs to go hand-in-hand with this government-based, top-down kind of uh, control is community engagement. Because without that, you know, you, you can check the premise for one day, but if you don't change the habit, then the next day when your vector control officer goes elsewhere, then the receptacles come back and they start breeding again, and so then this cycle goes on and on. Incredibly, in early October, just over a month after that first Zika case had resulted in cases ballooning to 293, the cluster was proclaimed under control, and two weeks later, it was declared closed. The World Health Organization called Singapore a role model in its handling of Zika. But for all of Singapore's success, replicating their model may not be all that easy, says Professor Ui. Singapore is probably under no illusion um, that what is done um, by us can be done by most other countries with dengue or, or Zika. Because it is expensive, it takes a big commitment from both the government and the public to have such programs in place. But it's important to remember that based off GDP per capita, Singapore is the third richest country in the world. Their economy dwarfs that of their neighbours, being three times that of Malaysia's, five times Thailand's and 12 that of Vietnam's. We spend um, an estimated $60 million a year, US dollars, $60 million a year just to control one mosquito and, you know, to prevent the disease spread by this mosquito. But unlike other wealthy nations like the US or the UK, Singapore typically hasn't chosen to be a major funder of global health initiatives. Its health dollars have stayed, for the most part, onshore. But where they have contributed is with the vital information that gets funneled through to the World Health Organization. Together with the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, regular meetings have helped to create an open atmosphere of disease admission and information sharing that hasn't always existed. You know, you just have to go, what, 13 years back in the SARS outbreak. Nobody knew about it when it really happened until it went global. Then we will say, wow, OK, we have a problem on our hands. 
you know, with each event, the response is like a, the whole world is trying to learn and how to cope with these emerging infections. So they're learning as they move along. For Singapore, they'll be hoping something of their strategy tackling Zika can help their neighbours. For while they may be successful containing Zika, in today's interconnected, travel-heavy world, even island nations understand that they're never truly isolated. For America Abroad, this is Adam Ramsey from Singapore. Head about 2,100 miles northwest of Singapore and you'll hit India. While Zika has yet to become a major problem there, mosquito-borne diseases are a perennial problem, one which the country has yet to fully get a handle on. Though as Antoine Gennard reports from New Delhi, new initiatives are providing some hope. Don't leave water in pots or empty tires. Wear long sleeves. Avoid taking paracetamol in case of joint pains. These are some of the simple tips that the Indian government has been circulating to its citizens through TV and radio ads in the last few months. The goal is to protect them from mosquito-borne diseases. In New Delhi this summer, an outbreak of chikungunya affected thousands, causing fevers and pains in the limbs. This was soon followed by the seasonal dengue epidemic, a more severe virus which can sometimes be fatal. Still, people should be doing a lot more to protect themselves from mosquitoes, says Dr. Ashish Bhatia, a physiotherapist working in the city. Over the last few months, he has seen 8 to 10 patients a day who are infected by chikungunya. The problem is that in the same infrastructure, you have a lot of population. The waste which comes out of every house, that is not being disposed of properly. And that is why the mosquitoes have got a very good ground to breeding. Now, if you can't prevent mosquitoes, you cannot prevent the disease from going out. Climate change, rapid urbanization, a growing population and lack of waste and water disposal are all factors that have allowed dengue and now chikungunya to thrive in Delhi. But Dr. Bhatia joins the chorus of voices that have blamed the Delhi government for its late reaction to the outbreak. Late fumigation drives and squabbling between different government bodies have made things worse this year. Dr. Mohan Kalra practices internal medicine in one of the capital's largest private hospitals. He says the country's healthcare system still lacks the capacity to handle these seasonal outbreaks. When there was an epidemic and there was a full flow of uh, dengue patients, there were no beds available. Patients were treated in wheelchairs, even on the benches, two in a bed, three in a bed, that was the situation. Actually, they should take an action much in advance. They don't take any action, only they will put posters. They don't coordinate their, the inspection team, the fogging team. They're not going in one go. The World Health Organization has called for the strengthening of India's disease surveillance network, urging the government and private healthcare sector to have closer communication. According to the WHO, this would allow a more reliable count of cases, which remain massively unreported. This includes other mosquito-borne diseases like malaria and Japanese encephalitis. But the government maintains it is working hard on the problem. In India, in government sector alone, we are providing diagnostic facilities uh, from as high as uh, 542 places. It's free of cost. Dr. Akshay Chandra Darival heads India's National Vector-Borne Disease Control Program. He says malaria remains the country's more pervasive problem. India is following the lead of some of the neighboring countries and is attacking the disease using a multi-pronged approach involving testing, treating and prevention. We have the target to make India free by 2027. But India's commitment to eradication has been challenged by a new UN study published in September by the British medical journal The Lancet. It revealed India only spends about 1.5% of its total GDP on healthcare, what the authors called an alarmingly low number. 
In particular, their malaria control efforts remain dismal. Overall, the country ranked in the bottom quarter of 188 countries surveyed in terms of quality of their health system. It's low, low compared to other countries, that's true. Um, but, you know, it's also still, though, the kinds of programs that there are, the kinds of maternal child health care programs, the National Health Mission are very, very strong programs with those resources. That's Dr. Kyla Lazarson. She's the director of the Center for Disease Control in India. The American organization set up shop in the country in 2001 with the goal of assisting the Indian government in fighting the spread of infectious diseases. Already in India, there's very strong laboratories, very good surveillance, very good public health capacity. Um, But what this global health security agenda is doing is sort of building more of that. So strengthening laboratory detection, bringing more diagnostics to more peripheral areas, for example, or quickening the response time uh, for an outbreak investigation or having more people trained to investigate outbreaks. So it's building upon an already strong system that's helpful in such a large country to have more of everything. This includes using new scientific methods, including biotechnology, to prevent mosquitoes from spreading diseases, says Dr. Darival of the Health Ministry. Like use of Wolbachia. If mosquitoes are infected with that uh, bacteria, then mosquito cannot grow to become infective. But while there's promise in programs like this, implementation is going to take a lot more political will and public involvement in order to change the status quo. Dr. Ashish Bhatia reminds us that there's a recent precedent for the country banding together to fight an infectious disease. Up until the early 90s, polio was still rampant through India, infecting 500 to 1,000 people a day. But an aggressive vaccination campaign began reversing the problem. Two years ago, India was finally declared polio-free. It's a question of intent, being very proactive, because look what has happened to polio in our city, in our country. So if we want, then good things can happen. It's a question of intent and being hardworking. The task is now even harder. Viruses like dengue and chikungunya don't have vaccines yet. The government, Dr. Bhatia and many other doctors remind us, cannot sanitize every neighborhood, every house and every room. For now, at least, it's above all up to the citizens of India to protect themselves. For America Abroad, I'm Antoine Guinard in New Delhi, India. You're listening to Fighting Zika and Future Epidemics on America Abroad. Coming up. You're now in the hub of where CDC commands and controls our public health responses. A tour of the CDC's Emergency Operations Center. If you have a story about what you're doing to prepare for Zika or have questions, find us on Facebook at America Abroad. You're listening to Fighting Zika and Future Epidemics on America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. As we've heard this hour with the World Health Organization facing a number of issues, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has taken over as the primary leader for global health. For a sense of how America's resources are put into action, we turn now to reporter and former CDC epidemiologist Philip Greitzer. Before getting into radio, I spent 18 years as an epidemiologist at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Last year, I came out of public health retirement to join a CDC team in Conakry, Guinea, West Africa, in response to the Ebola epidemic. 
the largest Ebola outbreak in history. The spread of the virus to Conakry, a city of some two million people, marks an escalation in the outbreak. In Guinea, now, more than 3,800 people got Ebola. Only about 1,300 survived. At the end of 2015, the World Health Organization declared the Ebola epidemic in Guinea over. Guineans were joyous. They greeted each other saying, Ebola, a fini. They were ready to move on. No more surgical masks, no more hand washing, no more temperature taking. They dropped their guard. Not surprisingly, another case of Ebola appeared in March 2016, and throughout that spring, there were several more. Now, six months later, no new cases have appeared, but Ebola remains a threat, as does the emergence of other diseases. The lesson of the last 10 years is that there's always something else. That's Dr. Stephen Redd director of CDC's Office of Public Health Preparedness. Having existing systems and being able to adapt them quickly is, is what we need to be able to do for these emerging infectious diseases. RED is helping lead CDC's global effort to prepare for the next health emergency. One part of that effort is CDC's Emergency Operations Center, or EOC. It's located in its own building on the CDC campus in suburban Atlanta. You're now in the hub of where CDC controls and commands and controls our public health responses. The EOC looks like NASA's mission control. It's a global disease command center where scientists, epidemiologists, and communications, logistics, and operations specialists work together during a public health emergency. Around the room, jumbo video monitors show up-to-the-minute data about the Zika response, polio in Africa, weather, and health alerts. Once activated, personnel are pulled from all over CDC to work on the problem and staff the center 24-7. Since 2009, almost full-time activation of the EOC has been the new norm. This spring, there were activations for polio, Ebola, Zika, and the Flint, Michigan water crisis all at once. Emergency operations, however, is only a part of public health preparedness because in parts of Africa and Asia, millions of people live in crowded conditions that are ripe for the rapid spread of disease. CDC's Stephen Red doesn't want that to happen. We are working with countries overseas to establish laboratory systems for detection, to uh, train workforces to be able to respond. The idea is that countries will have the capacity to detect outbreaks and to respond to them effectively. This effort is being backed at the highest levels of government. During the 2011 U.N. General Assembly, President Obama called for the world to coordinate its efforts to combat infectious diseases. And today I urge all nations to join us in meeting the HOO's goal of making sure all nations have core capacities to address public health emergencies in place by 2012. That is what our commitment to the health of our people demands. In 2014, world leaders came together to create the Global Health Security Agenda with the intention of aiding more than a dozen countries in Africa and Asia in their fight against infectious diseases. The coalition now includes 55 countries, 
but the U.S. is by far the leader, committing a billion dollars in assistance to 17 at-risk countries to address epidemic threats. But the global health security agenda is not totally altruistic. Dr. Stephen Redd, director of CDC's Office of Public Health Preparedness. This work overseas actually benefits the United States. If the country and the global community can contain an outbreak outside the United States, that has a benefit. According to Dr. Richard Danilla, deputy state epidemiologist at the Minnesota Department of Health, international travel has increased the likelihood that he'll see a previously unseen infectious disease. You know, you could be in a very remote part of the world right now, today, uh, and get exposed to some exotic infection uh, and then literally get on a plane and be here in Minnesota tomorrow and uh, be at the emergency room tomorrow night with some unusual infections. CDC provides $576 million to support state and local health departments to increase their public health preparedness. Health departments have improved their laboratories, employed more epidemiologists, and built disease detection systems. But even though the capacities have increased, a health emergency puts a huge burden on state and local health departments. During the 2014 Ebola epidemic, Minnesota Health Department employees had to track all travelers arriving from Ebola-infected countries. Dr. Dinoa. We had to pull in people from our sexually transmitted disease section, people from our vaccine preventable disease section. So we do have to pull people in all the time to respond to emergencies. And robbing Peter to pay Paul has its consequences. When you are pulled away for an emergency, the more routine work falls behind, and we're always worried we're going to miss something. Health departments aren't alone in having to shift their staff in times of crisis. More than 1,600 CDC staff were deployed to help with the 2014 Ebola outbreak. CDC is investing more than $2 billion over the next five years to prepare itself, developing countries, and state and local health departments for health emergencies. And while health preparedness is still a work in progress, CDC's Stephen Redd thinks that this investment has made a difference. I think we are much more prepared than we were five years ago or 10 years ago. In five years from now, we'll be more prepared than we are today. For America Abroad, I'm Philip Gratzer. So America has improved its capacity to respond quickly to health emergencies. But what's really going to keep the world safe is day-to-day prevention, says Rebecca Katz of Georgetown University. I think people have been saying for years that the bugs are smarter than we are. And I think the threat of a large-scale pandemic is very likely in our lifetime. So living with that knowledge, to me, the best thing we can do is build our capacities to do good planning, to work together in advance of of an event, to work with our partners in countries around the world to help them understand the importance of protecting population health and in building appropriate infrastructure, and to marshal resources best we can to make that happen. Thomas Boyke from the Council on Foreign Relations agrees, and he says the U.S. needs to pay more attention to diseases that don't make headlines. The biggest burden in premature mortality in low-middle-income countries by a long way are actually from things like cardiovascular disease, cancers, and diabetes. And we really don't do anything in our programs to address that. And to some degree, that makes us non-responsive to countries' health concerns, which I think over time start to undermine the benefit of these global health investments if we don't respond just getting across the importance of public health infrastructure, it's not sexy. 
It's not exciting. Here's Rebecca Katz again from Georgetown University. You know, if we build a really good disease surveillance system, what can I show to somebody? I can say I have a really good disease surveillance system and we're going to catch stuff faster. But that's a harder argument. It's not as clean of an argument as saying I distributed 100,000 bed nets and this number of kids didn't get malaria this year because of it. So it's just as important. For most of this hour, we've been talking about Zika, infectious disease, prevention, containment, and eradication. But here's a question everyone's probably thinking. What does this mean for me? For that answer, we turn now to Dr. Michael Callahan of Harvard and Mass General Hospital. Dr. Callahan is a tropical infectious disease specialist and has personally treated more than 1,700 Zika patients. He runs the nonprofit Zika Foundation as well. His group, along with the CDC, has been helping in efforts to eradicate the Aedes aegypti. That's the mosquito that carries the disease. It's a particularly difficult task given that the specific mosquito flies low, so aerial spraying doesn't really work. It feeds during the day, which means mosquito nets are largely ineffective, and it breeds in smaller, denser areas, so even a puddle of water in an alleyway can be a breeding ground. I asked Dr. Callahan, how freaked out should we be? We need to be attentive, and we need to marshal resources and have a pragmatic steady, scientifically-based and public health-based response. There will be no zombie mosquito apocalypse here. This is the adaptation of really well-tested strategies that have curbed these epidemics in other cities that are very reminiscent of what we have here in the U.S., for which we've already established budgets, from which we've already established success, and for which we've already demonstrated a bend in the trajectory to convert what can be tens and tens of thousands of cases per city to literally tens of cases, and we seek to drive those numbers down even further. So cities need to, um, the listener needs to take care of their house and their yard. The village groups, the block party can get together to control the region. Each mosquito zone of autonomy at the individual level is 400 feet. Again and again, we've demonstrated in urban deterrent strategies that each household can control 400 feet in diameter and produce a 6x reduction in infections in their households within six weeks. So those mathematical certainties are in place here in the U.S., and we need only to commit to them with education, with excellent scientific fact, with budget forecasting to fortify our mosquito control programs and make sure that we work hand-in-hand between our state agencies and our federal agencies, most notably led by the CDC. Our foundation works on even literacy in three languages, Spanish, Portuguese, and English, um, to get this information out and will really help the individual to understand what works and what doesn't work. The color of clothing that you should wear in the area to avoid perfumes and fragrances because they attract this mosquito and how to make your house mosquito-proof for this particular mosquito. It is not like the others out there. It's different, and it wants to be near you, and it wants to breed in your backyard or your sprinkler heads or your flower pot. 
Okay, where do we find out these this information, these tips? Well, our information home? is propagating through the Pan American Health Organization and foreign ministries. can be found on the CDC website, or you can go to the late breaker data from our field studies at the Zika Foundation, and within two mouse clicks, you'll find the deterrent measures for this mosquito. It's not good for the West Nile mosquito. It's not good for the malaria mosquito. It's specifically tuned for our field studies and our large-scale insectary studies for how to deter Aedes aegypti mosquitoes from biting people. And before you spray a pesticide or before you put some repellent on your skin, you can result in a 7 to 10x reduction in mosquito-human contact just with behavior clothing, avoiding perfumes, and looking at some of the other strategies that we use there, such as the use of antibacterial soap. Antibacterial soaps, or even the soap that your grandmother used to use on you, it really has a fairly aggressive detergent that destroys bacteria on your skin. Two types of bacteria on your skin take the oils of your skin and really metabolize it. That's the bacteria food, and what you would call body odor, or stinky feet. And what that odor does is it is crack for mosquitoes. It brings Aedes aegypti in farther from than any other chemoattractant that we've used. So we've mimicked that odor for our baits and our traps to both push the mosquito away from pregnant women and men who are sexually active and pull the mosquito towards our traps. And that information is easily found on our website. So keep your feet clean change the insoles inside your sneakers, launder your clothing so that you don't smell like dirty gym socks, avoid deodorants that have flower-like fragrance because mosquitoes feed on nectar, and it's only when they're trying to lay eggs that they feed on blood and try to, and the females try to find you. So when you wear a flower print shirt, particularly yellow or red flowers, you have a 3x increase in mosquito landing time on your shirt. A white shirt has almost no landings on it, and a black rock concert t-shirt has a high hit rate. So don't wear flowers, and if you uh, want somebody to be bitten by this mosquito, give them a stinky black (laughs) t-shirt. Okay, all you heavy metal fans out there, beware. Dr. Michael Callahan, Tropical Infectious Disease Specialist and head of the Zika Foundation, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. So the upshot seems to be you probably don't have to lose sleep over Zika. But Zika will not be the last mosquito-borne virus we'll have to worry about. We can try to eradicate these tiny blood-sucking insects, but they have proven remarkably resilient. After all, without us, where would they be? This Hour of America Abroad was written and edited by Rob Sachs and produced by Yael Evan Orr with additional production help from Flan Williams and Margaret Evans. Audio engineering support was provided by Mario Saavedra and Joel Stein at KCRW. Special thanks to WLRN in Miami for their help. You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, finding us on the America Abroad or Public Radio International apps, or by visiting our website at pri.org where you can also find extended interviews and exclusive content pertaining to this and other programs. I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Support for this show was provided by Public Radio International stations and listeners like you.
RI Public Radio International.